And so what we're going to do here is we're going to start in Genesis 3. And there's something that the Lord prophesies over uh, Satan and uh, Eve in Genesis 3.15. So why don't we just start off here? This is going to be our launching point. And uh, Cassette, why don't you, can you read Genesis 3.15 for me? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, but you will bruise him on the heel. Okay. So we've we've gone over some of this stuff before. We, we've hit this verse quite a few times, actually. Um, who is the your seed? Um, isn't that the woman's seed? No, no, uh -huh. I'm sorry, that's her seed. Okay, okay. Um, is that... He will bruise. Oh, so the serpent. The serpent. The serpent. Okay, so he's talking to the serpent right now. And he says, your seed and her seed. And he'll put enmity in between them. Okay. So from the very beginning, right after the fall, uh, we see a lot in this verse. One, one of the things we see is that there's going to be uh, enmity between her seed, which will eventually be Christ himself, and his seed, which is all of humanity, because his seed actually went into all of humanity and became uh, one, one with Satan in that regard. And then also at the end of the verse, what do you see? What is, he actually like tells us what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he will bruise you on the head. So the woman's seed will bruise the serpent on the head. And he will bruise the Christ on the heel. Right. When did this happen? On the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so God in Genesis 3.15 is actually already telling the serpent, by the way, uh, this is going to go down. And you will bruise him on the heel. What, what actually ends up happening is the first three hours the first three hours, uh, Christ is judged by man. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into this. And the last three hours, he's judged by God. So you could actually connect him being bruised on the heel happens in the first three hours. And him bruising you on the head happens in the last three hours. Okay. And we're going to get into the point of, of when when Satan realized this was happening, uh, when when it dawned on him that I'm actually being destroyed right now, and uh, I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So at this point, uh, this is just kind of the setup that we're going to launch from that eventually will be the 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 cross itself. So at this point, I'm going to hand it off to Nathaniel. You know, uh, from the time that he was born, the Lord Jesus, uh, his life was a life of continual and constant warfare. And we see this, uh, you know, as, first of all, you know, as he's born in the manger, uh, it, at, right after that becomes very clear that his life is in danger. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't think that this is just coincidental. Uh, God has an enemy, and his enemy was very clear 
that God had just become a man. And so it was, and he was also clear that there is such a thing as the principle of incarnation. And so according to um, uh, this kind of, um, uh, yeah, anyway, in, in this, according to this principle, uh, most of the time we see Satan working through the, uh, whether it's human, uh, the human government or the religious system or just people in general, we see Satan primarily working in that way. Um, there is an ins there is an instance documented in the gospels where he comes directly to the Lord to tempt him. Uh, but otherwise it's primarily through uh, men. And so we see with Herod, uh, he became very jealous and he ordered all the young boys under the age of two in that region to be killed. Um, this was just, this was unnecessary, but it was just an expression of uh, Satan's uh, rage and, and cruelty. Uh, and then eventually, you know, of course, the Lord had to flee to Egypt and after he returned, he grew up and then he entered into his ministry. And uh, right before he entered into his ministry, the devil came again. And this time he came to tempt him. Uh, hang on, am I getting the sequence wrong? He gets baptized. And then I think I might... Hey. Yeah, he gets tempted after the baptism. That's right. So he gets baptized. And I, I want to mention this because, thanks, Guillaume. Um, I want to mention this because uh, this is critical for something we're going to talk about later. You know, uh, when he gets baptized, the spirit descends mm -hmm. upon him. Uh, so I'm just, I'm going to say that much and we'll, we'll get into it later. So then after his baptism... He is uh, led by the spirit uh, into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And uh, there's just a very striking uh, phrase in, I think it's in Luke chapter uh, three. Can we go there? Or sorry, Luke chapter four. Can we go there, Trevor? Yeah. So in, in Luke chapter four, um, what I want to point out is in verse 13, right? And it says, and maybe, let's see, Paul, can you read that for us? And when the devil had concluded every temptation, he went away from him until an opportune time. You're right. I just want to make that point. Note that until an opportune time, okay? And so uh, this phrase actually doesn't appear uh in the in the other gospels as far as i'm aware and so uh it just indicates that the devil this was not the last time that the devil was going to come to him and that the devil actually had had the way to come to him at any time after this point any time to tempt him again and again uh as he saw fit so uh a, a, another uh indication that there was a lot of warfare going on is how many times the chief priests and the scribes took counsel to kill him 
they were really, really upset with him, particularly in, in John uh, chapter 8. You see, uh, you know, at that point, he says, you were of your father, uh, the devil. Uh, and then uh, he says in verse uh, 837, I know you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And then in verse 40, but now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. And then in uh, 844, you see why they are. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And, uh, you know, uh, this this kind of expression was was coming out all the time and you know in ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 when it speaks about spiritual warfare it makes the point that our wrestling is not against blood and flesh our wrestling is against the principalities and powers which are in the heavenlies and so this is a very important principle that we need to bear in mind you know whenever we are faced with any kind of situation or environment uh, our first reaction is to focus on the people involved. But we need to remember we are children of God and the enemy is not disinterested when it comes to how he deals with us. And so oftentimes people are acting in ways that are sometimes quite cruel or other times uh, just unreasonable. And this is just the enemy coming forth, coming out of them. And so we need to realize that our wrestling is not against blood and flesh. The Lord had this realization, and we will see, you know, in this dive session, we won't be focusing so much on the blood and flesh. We'll be focusing on what is taking place behind the scenes. Um, okay, and then, uh, so I think, I think, um, at this point, I'm just going to hand it over uh, to Guillaume, who's going to bring out another uh, very, very precious point. Yeah. Amen. Just listening to you, I get um, that reminds me of how how Satan, after this word in Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman, he knew something would happen at some point that God would do something. And so, like you just described, you know, after he was born, he, he was trying to, to kill him. After he was baptized, he was also trying to tempt him. And so, all the time, he's, he's around. He's trying to, um, to alter God's plan. And even if you, if you think back uh, in, in the Old Testament, even with Cain, like the first child that was ever born, he, he, he manipulated him to, to kill Abel. Abel, who had the way of redemption in, in type with, um, you know, he was tending the sheep. And anyway, so from the very beginning, Satan was always trying to disrupt. And he, he's not all-knowing. So he didn't know that a child would be born in Bethlehem at some point. But he tried times and times again. To, um, to interfere. And I think in, in correspondence to that, the Lord in his human living, he was, he was determined 
he was set. And so there are a number of verses uh, that I really appreciate in the Gospel of Luke, especially, but also in Mark. Maybe we can go to one of one of them uh, in Luke nine. If we can jump to uh, maybe verse fifty one, um, we can read it together. Could you, uh, Wei Ping? Could you read it for us? Uh, if you can be unmuted. Yeah. Okay. And as the days were being fulfilled for him to be taken up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right. And uh, oh, this this little phrase, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That really impresses me. And, and, and it's repeated many, many times, especially in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where we see the Lord's humanity. Uh, in Luke 50, 9.53, uh, Luke 12, uh, sorry, 13.22, 17.11, Luke 19.11 and 28. So numerous times we have this. And so, oh, the Lord, I, I'm just so impressed. I'm just so thankful we have these dive sessions together because that brings us to get into the word. And, and we read things and we may not be that impressed, but when we dive into it, it, it really touches us. And so this is the man who knows what's ahead of him. So in about a week from now, he knows he will be on the cross. And so, and he knows he will be delivered up in the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I guess that, you know, spending time with them in the temple, uh, as they were you know, arguing, asking questions, and he could sense, he could see in their eyes, the hatred, uh, the anger, and he knew he would be in their hands. And so despite knowing what was ahead, he was, he was determined. Nothing could deter the Lord's purpose. Nothing could phase him. And so, you know, he was set like, he set his face like a flint. And I'm just, you know, when I was learning English, to have his face set like a flint, it didn't make any sense to me, but I just enjoyed the utterance. He just kind of, kind of uh, gave me the impression, this man is on a mission. This man is determined. And maybe we can go to Luke, uh, no, sorry, maybe Mark. Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 32 and 33. And maybe if you're okay, you can read those verses to us again. Yeah. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus led the way before them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that were about to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Amen. Here we see again, his mind is very sober. He knows what's ahead. His emotions, as we saw last week, were very fine, very, very powerful. And in, in his will, he's determined. He, the verse says, verse 32, that he led the way before them. And they were amazed. They were amazed how determined he was. Even though they were telling him, we shouldn't go to Jerusalem. 
because they were afraid. They knew what might happen there. But the Lord, he just had this determined will. And so there's this verse that comes, this utterance, sorry, that comes again and again. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so just as a side note, um, I was recently reading about what we call loss aversion, uh, the fear of losing. Like some, anyways, um, it's a study on why we don't take risks and why we are uh, afraid of losing things. And so we have a point of reference. This is where we are today, our current situation. So this is where we are. And when we consider um, things in our lives and we fear of losing, we think that loss is to go back somewhere below from our point of reference. But the Lord, he knew that actually our point of reference is to be away from God, to be separated from God, to be separated from the tree of life. And he knew that actually we should go back to what was at the beginning. So he was determined to bring all of us back to God's original intention and nothing could change him. Nothing could deter him. And so I'm just impressed with his fine humanity and how determined he was in fulfilling and carrying out God's plan. Okay, uh, we can, I think we can move on uh, and can pass it on to Trevor. Okay, so at this point, what we're going to do is we're going to start to touch um, what's going on in the spiritual realm. So there's there are some things that uh, I was really freshly impressed with this week that um, I had never really noticed before. One of them is God's sovereignty over the entire situation. Okay, I'll say that again. God's sovereignty over the entire situation. I think when we read the Gospels and we read what happened to the Lord, we think that it's completely out of control. We think that man is in control of the situation and God is just the innocent bystander who is uh, who's basically just going along with it. But actually, time and again, you can see when you study this that God is sovereignly arranging everything. And one of, one of those things is, uh, here, Paul, who, who actually judged the Lord? The Father. Okay, so you're getting to the cross, but who judged him before oh. that? Oh, right. Um, yeah, well, no one. Pilate washed his hands of him. The, the Jewish leaders passed him over to Pilate. They just bounced him from post to post and stuck him on a cross. Okay, that was a really, like odd way of saying it but but um i i yeah i I see what you mean but but that really what actually ends up happening is under god's sovereign hand you know back in the back in the day uh jews would the 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 criminal punishment was stoning the stoning the person to death right so oddly enough though why was jesus who was being tried by the jewish pharisees and the Sanhedrin, why was he crucified? And this was this was all sovereignly arranged by the Lord. Even, even the Lord uh, spoke about it in the book of Numbers. 
you know, that, that the bronze serpent would be, would be risen up on the stick, right? Well, think about this for a second. Crucifixion didn't even happen. It wasn't even going on back in the book of Numbers. But God, in his sovereign arrangement, would know that at a certain time period, man, this is based on his foreknowledge, that man would actually create this way of torture. And so God sovereignly arranged that first, first, Jesus would be judged by the Jews. Okay, this is, this is when he's first captured. And he's, and he's taken to the high priest and all this stuff. He is judged by the Jews. Then he's taken to the Roman government and he's judged by the Romans. And the reason why this has a lot of spiritual significance is because God sovereignly arranged that both would judge him. So therefore the Lord would actually be dying for both. He would be dying for the Jews and the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And so both of them judged him. Okay, this is this is one this is one way of showing his sovereignty. Another is is this whole aspect of the execution itself, and what's what's really incredible. There's this verse. I actually found it a few minutes before we started today, and it's man, it is crazy. Okay, um, can Paul? Can you read verse twenty three? And this is Acts two twenty three. This man delivered up by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you, through the hand of lawless men, nailed to a cross and killed. Okay, bro, this was determined. It was determined. How? It was determined in the before knowledge of God. This is, this is crazy, man, that he would be nailed to a cross. God had a counsel that this is how it would happen. Okay, that he would be nailed to a cross. And so to fulfill this plan that they had, he sovereignly arranged the whole situation. Okay. Then you have, then you've got this, this is, so this is stuff that's kind of going on in the background that you don't normally see when you're, when you're reading the gospels. And this is Matthew's 26, um, three and five. Can you read three through five, bro? Then the chief priests and the elders of the people who were gathered together in the courtyard of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they took counsel together to seize Jesus by craftiness and kill him. And they said, not at the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Bro, not at the feast. Yeah. When did they actually end up doing it? In the darkness of night. After the no, no, they, bro, they, they offered him up. At the feast. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is the thing, man. Their, their plan, their plan, you know, man, man can have all kinds of plans, man. We can, man, we can make some plans. But you are not going, if, if God, if God's will is actually in the way of your plan, ain't nothing your plan's going to do. And so these, these Jewish leaders, they're like, oh, no, we, we don't want an uprising from the people. So actually what we're going to do is we're not going to kill him at the feast. We can't do that. And actually, according to God's sovereignty, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. It was something that they couldn't, they couldn't stop. Okay. So now, now you've got Matthew 26. Then, then, um, oh man, this is crazy. There, there are so many things that are happening behind the scenes. Then you have Luke 22. 
31 and 32. And this one, this one's kind of interesting. I don't know how many people have actually read this verse or it, maybe it stuck out to them. Can you read that, bro? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to have you all to sift you as wheat. But I have made petition concerning you that your faith would not fail. And you, once you have turned again, establish your brothers. Oh, Paul, have you read this verse before? That's a long time ago. Bro, this is crazy. This is crazy. So, so Satan, at a certain point in time behind the scenes, came to the Lord Jesus. And he actually asked him, I want to sift your disciples like wheat. Okay, and, and a lot, it, this is, this really sounds exactly like what happened in the book of Job, right? Yeah, Satan yeah. goes in the midst of, of the council that God's having with, with the sons of God in front of the throne. And, and, you know, they, they talk about Job and all this, does Job fear God without cause? Okay, this is the same type of thing. At some point in time, Satan actually came and asked permission to sift them as wheat. So this has to do with Simon is Peter. And Simon actually, eventually, obviously, you know that he, he uh, denies the Lord three times, right? Yeah. So this was actually Satan's doing. But the Lord knew it. And then the Lord, the Lord also tells Peter, but by the way, I, I'm petitioning concerning you that once you go through this trial, once you go through this test, that you would come and establish your brothers, which is actually exactly what ends up happening. Okay. So these are things that are going on behind the scenes. This, this is all happening. Okay. Then we have, then we've got John. Right. Uh, 13, 27. And this one, this one gets a little weird. Um, can you hit that one for me? And at that moment, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Okay, so this has to do, you can see in the verse, uh, the prior verse, that it's, it's Judas, right? So at this time, Judas, um, he takes the morsel, and then he becomes possessed by Satan. Satan goes into him, okay? I have absolutely no, I, I mean, the word says it would have been better for Judas not to be born. Okay. Um, it's, it's a bad, it's a bad deal. Um, but what actually ends up happening, and this was something that we, we got into this last week and I was like, oh man, I'll save it for next week because I, I just, I was blown away by this because this, this, this doesn't have to do with the physical realm. So we didn't do it last week, but it, it kind of, okay, look at this, bro. It, so, so right now, Judas is being controlled by Satan, right? And he goes to the chief priests and everything, and he, he gets his little cohort of soldiers, and then they're going to the garden to arrest Jesus, okay? So keep in mind, Satan is in Judas. Mm -hmm. He's in him, okay? And then what you have is Matthew 26, 31. Now you tell me how the Lord should feel or how you would feel. Uh, here we go. 40, 48. Oh yeah. <laughs> 48 and 49. Now the one who was betraying him had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately he came to Jesus and said, rejoice rabbi and kissed him affectionately. Oh, bro. 
bro, I had never seen this before. Before last week, I had never seen this. So what you have is you have Satan controlling Judas. And, bro, he goes up and he kisses the Lord in the garden. Have you ever seen that before, bro? No. Bro, so behind the scenes, you're the Lord. Pretend you're the Lord here for a second. You know Judas just went to go sell you out and that Satan actually entered into him. And then he comes with his cohort of soldiers. And, and I, don't, I, you know, I don't know what the Lord can see. Uh, you know, I, he's got special glasses that I don't. You know, he can see both realms, I'm sure. And, but, bro, can you imagine? Of course Judas is there. But he sees Satan in Judas, and he just comes up and kisses him affectionately, Paul. It's not just like, it's not just like a little like tap on the cheek. It was affectionate. Oh, I would, I would, if I was the Lord, I would be so angry. This is, this is my mortal enemy that I've been fighting for millions of years. And he just came up and kissed me. Okay. So this is another thing that's happening in the spiritual realm behind the scenes. Okay. The last one that I'm going to bring out here uh, is actually Luke 22. And this one, this one really, um, sorry about that. Luke, uh, Luke 22, 52. This one really sets the tone and it's a great, it's a great verse to show what is going on. Can you do 20 or 52 and 53? And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come up against him, have you come out again as, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? While I was with you day by day in the temple, you did not stretch out your hands against me, but this is your hour and the authority of darkness. Okay. This is interesting, bro. So this, this is the Lord, you know, this is in the garden. Um, they're, they're coming to arrest him. And, and he actually says, but this is your hour and the authority of darkness. So he is actually telling you there is an authority of darkness that has taken over the scene. This is what's going on behind the scene. There's an authority of darkness that is taking over. Okay. And so this is actually what we're going to start diving into is what is happening behind the scenes. What's happening in the spiritual realm? Um, one more verse, and this has to do with God's sovereignty, and I actually think it's really cool. So at 6 a.m., um, the guys and I did a lot of uh, research on this as far as the time periods of how this progressed and trying to line. It's actually way more difficult than everybody realizes probably, but uh, we did our best. So at, at six, he starts standing trial against Pilate. That's kind of early, you know, like if I'm Pilate, I, I don't know if I'm an early riser, if I'm, if I'm just a Roman, uh, you know, uh, government employee, I, I think I'm probably, he was probably partying the night before, but they, they woke him up. Right. And so at 6am they bring him in he gets, he gets put on trial. Then he also gets taken over to Herod. Okay. Then at 7am, all this, all these things that we know about, you know, they offer up different options and everybody's like, no, no, you know, him. Interestingly enough, in, in John 19, and this is 19 through 22. Look what the, can you read these, bro? And Pilate wrote a notice also and put it on the cross and it was written, 
Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. This notice, therefore, many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews, therefore, said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. <laughs> okay, this is God's sovereignty, bro. This is God's sovereignty. What I have written, I have written. The end. I don't care if it's a mistake because it's not a mistake. Yeah. It's not a mistake. And so God in his sovereignty is working behind the scenes here. The spiritual significance of it being written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. The Hebrew represents the religious people. The Latin represents the government at that time or just human government. And the Greek represents culture. God died for all three. He died for all mankind. And this was what was hung up on the cross while he was dying. He died for all religious people. He died for all of politics and all culture. All of it needs to die. And all of it needs to be saved. Okay, so at this point, they then lead him to Calvary. And this is at 8 a.m., and then we, then we enter the crucifixion, which starts at 9 a.m. And during the crucifixion, what we have is multiple aspects of, of God's sovereignty. If you, if you hit some of the, I actually just started hitting the footnotes and I just started, I just started typing in sovereign and you wouldn't even imagine how many things pop up, okay? Even them casting lots for his clothing it actually says that the soldiers did it. But the footnote talks, no, actually, this was God's sovereignty to fulfill what was said in Psalm 22. So all of these things are behind the scenes where it looks, it really looks like man is in control of the situation. But actually, the Lord Jesus and, and, and the Father, they're just setting this up in the background. This is all supposed to happen according to their counsel. Okay, what ends up happening is the first three hours, he's crucified at nine, and for the first three hours, he's judged by man. They sit there, they mock him, they, they, they tell him, oh, if he's the king of the Jews, why don't you come down? Save yourself, you save so many others. And so for three hours, from nine to 10 through 11, he is judged and mocked by man, okay? But that is setting the scene for what's going to happen at noon. So this is clearly the first three hours judged by man. And then something happens at noon. And at this part, Nathaniel's going to take over. So let's uh, go to Mark 15, verse 33. And uh, Cosette, could you read that for us? Sure. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Right. So, you know, during the last, uh, during the first three hours, the Lord spoke about three sentences. And during the last three hours, he spoke about four sentences. 
and as far as we can tell he spoke most of those four he spoke those four sentences towards the end of these last three hours uh, because you know it'll say in verse 34 at the and and at the ninth hour which uh was really coming right up to the end of when he was on the cross um <clears throat> so during the last three hours something that the atmosphere changed okay and darkness fell over the whole land um you could say that the first three hours man and through man satan was expressing his hatred towards god uh the last three hours re actually reveal to us the love of god and so the cross is this meeting point of love of hatred and love um the first sentence that was spoken uh that we that we can identify uh at the around the ninth hour uh is in verse uh, 34 and there jesus cries out with a loud voice and he says eli eli lama sabachthani okay and this is in uh aramaic so this is striking because Aramaic is actually the language of his hometown. Um, as far as we can tell, it doesn't seem like in the other utterances there it, that they weren't, they're not so explicitly spoken. They're not at least not explicitly spoken in Aramaic. This is one of the, there are other portions actually of the New Testament that are but this is seems to be one of the very few statements where the lord explicitly um says something and so you have to remember the lord while being god is also a man and something very very particular was happening during this time you know hebrews 9:14 says that through the eternal spirit he offered himself okay he offered himself to God. All right. We recall that we mentioned that when the Lord Jesus was baptized, uh, the spirit uh, descended upon him, right? The spirit came upon him. Uh, this is different than his birth, okay? Uh, there's a big difference here. Uh, in Luke one thirty five, it says that that which is born, right, is of the Holy Spirit. This implies that when the Lord Jesus was born, he had within him the essence of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit essentially, okay? Uh, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit depend, descended upon him and did so economically. That is for the carrying out of his plan, for the carrying out of his economy, for his ministry, for his work. Once the Lord offered himself to God on the cross through the eternal spirit, God accepted that offering, okay? 
And we need to be clear here. We're talking about the triune God, okay? We're not talking about three gods. We're talking about the triune God, okay? So this is very mysterious. And this is something that we can describe to some extent, but we will never be able to plumb the depths of the feeling that existed between the Father and the Son at this moment, okay? Because at this moment, God took the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future, and he placed it on the Lord Jesus. Okay, at this point, um, we can go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Kazette, can you read that for us? Yeah. Him who did not know sin, he made sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Mm. So this is exactly what was happening at this moment uh, during these three hours. Him who did not know sin, and we need to be clear, he, it's, not, it's not that he, uh, he, he be, it's not that uh, he had uh, a kind of sinful nature. It's that God actually, in the eyes of God, his son became in his eyes sin. Okay? How this is possible, don't ask me to tell you how it's possible. We, can, we just have the word of God. And so in God's eyes, he actually made him uh, to be to bear the sin of the entire world, and so that may seem a little impersonal. So it's better to say even that he bore the sin; he was made sin uh, on our behalf. Okay, everything that we have done, everything that we are, was put on the Son. Okay. Now let's go to Galatians 3.13. Can we read that, Cosette? Christ has redeemed, redeemed us out of the curse of the law, having become a curse on our behalf, because it is written, Cursed is everyone hanging on a tree. So he was lifted up onto the tree, onto the cross, and there he became a curse on our behalf, okay? Um, actually, we all deserve the curse. And in God's eyes, we all were cursed. What happened is that God became a man. And in becoming a man, that qualified him to die for us, okay? And in dying for us, this wasn't just a simple matter of shedding blood and suffering the physical and psychological torture that he suffered. That in itself is excruciating. Um, but that would uh, still not separate him from other martyrs that we've had in church history. 
what separated him from all the other martyrs is that God forsook him. God, the Father, actually forsook him economically. They had, they, the Father and the Son from eternity past had never been separated. From eternity past, he and the Father were one. We can't understand, we can't even begin to understand this kind of oneness. But for these three hours, he was economically separated, not essentially, economically separated from the Father. Okay. So his intrinsic constitution was not altered by his death. Mm -hmm. The essential elements of the divine trinity were still part of his being. But economically, God forsook him. And God forsook him so that we would not be forsaken by God. Amen. Okay. So this is the first sentence. Uh, we will get into the other sentences. And uh, the way we will do that is uh, Trevor is going to take us through very precious. Trevor and Guillaume will take us through some very precious points. Okay. Hoi uh, Ping. Did I, are you unmuted? Sorry. You there? Yep. Okay. I need you to read Genesis 3.24. Amen. So he drove the men out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay. This, this is incredible. Wei Ping, have you ever have you ever heard what this actually represents spiritually? Mm. Is it like mm, so we can't come to God because we're sinful? Yeah. Okay. So the the cherub the cherub actually represents God's glory, and we can see this. I'm gonna I'm just gonna rattle off some verses. You all can write down. Um, if you want, but we're not going to go through them. But the cherub represents God's glory, and this is seen in Exodus three or nine three and ten four. The cherub is standing in between man and the tree of life in the garden. Man no longer has a right to the tree of life. Okay. the The sword represents God's righteousness. And the flame represents his holiness. You know, in Hebrews, uh, it says that our God is a consuming fire. So these three things need to be fulfilled for man to have a right back to the tree of life, which eventually becomes the Holy of Holies, right? The Holy of Holies is where God dwells in the temple. So interestingly enough, on the cross, what we're going to do right now is we're going to break down how all three of these things were fulfilled on the cross, which gave us the right back to the tree of life. Are you ready, Hoy? Are you, are you ready? 
I was going to call you Huawei because there's a sister here. And anyway, Huawei Ping, sorry. So, yeah, there's a sister in Munich. Her name's, okay, you get it. Okay, so this is the deal. Uh, what we have here is in Exodus 26. I don't know if you guys ever realized this, but in Exodus 26, 31 through 35, do you know what is on the veil that separates the inner court from the Holy of Holies? Not really. Okay, read verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet strands and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. Okay, so the cherubim represent God's glory, okay? And this, I don't know if you realize how thick this veil was. I've never seen a piece of cloth this thick. Uh, the, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was... Some people, some people say it was over a foot or two feet thick, thick. Okay, I've never seen a piece of cloth that big. I also don't know how, how the Jews, after it was ripped from top to bottom, which actually represents that God is the one who did it, because if man was going to rip it, they would rip it from the bottom up. Okay, so it was actually ripped from heaven to earth. It was ripped down. Um, I, I don't... How can you, how can you, after seeing that, how can you still sit there and go, hmm, uh, why don't we just sew that thing back up and, and we'll uh, just pretend like nothing happened. Uh, but that's exactly what they did. But actually what's on, what's on this veil is these cherubs. Okay. And the cherubs signify God's glory. And what actually ended up happening is once the Lord died, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, signifying God's glory has been, it has been fulfilled. You, you can actually now have right to the tree of life. Okay, Hui Ping, I have a question for you. The veil being ripped, what does that actually represent for you as a believer? That I now can come to God. Okay, what does it represent for God? That he now can have men coming to him. <laughs> so this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is this is the thing that the temple. Interestingly enough, we know in, we know in First Thessalonians five twenty three that man is three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Okay, and we also know in First Corinthians three and in First Corinthians six, Paul clearly says that your body is a temple. We also know that the temple is three parts. There's the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. The outer court, everybody can see, Hui Ping. When someone walks down the street, they can see you because it's your physical body. Just like the outer court, everybody could see it. The inner court, only certain priests could go into the inner court. And this can, this can represent your soul. Only, only a few people actually ever get to realize who Hui Ping is. The only, only the ones that she allows in to that part of her. Okay. And then your spirit is actually where God dwells in the Holy of Holies. Okay. These are the three parts of your being. This is why Paul said your body is a temple. Okay. Yeah. Interestingly enough, if you look at it from that perspective, when that veil is ripped from top to bottom, 
not only do you have right into the tree into the tree of life which is the holy of holies okay but he now has right into your soul he can now spread organically from the holy of holies and grow into your soul he can spread to the rest of the temple so you're not the only one that gets to benefit from the veil being ripped actually god gets to benefit also from the veil being ripped okay so this happened on the cross god's glory was expressed and actually we'll get into it later but one of the soldiers actually looks at him and it says he glorified god saying surely this man was righteous okay we know in romans that only god is righteous there is not one who's righteous not even one so for him to be able to declare that and say that about the lord he realized he was unveiled in his spirit and he realized this man was god he wasn't just an ordinary man because no man can be righteous this man was god he was righteous okay so this there was an expression of glory and glory is actually god expressed that's what glory actually is so there's an expression of God being expressed on the cross that caused even, even one of the soldiers who were maybe even responsible for killing the Lord to actually say, this man was righteous. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to move, Hui Ping, we're going to move to holiness because we that's only fulfilling one thing, the glory. But we have to fulfill his holiness, or he does, right? So the second sentence, the, the, the window that we get here, into the spiritual realm of what's happening is something that the Lord says. The Lord says, I thirst in John 19, 28. John 19, 28, I thirst. There's one other time where someone says that in the, in the New Testament, or I should say in the Gospels. And it's actually in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man is in the, is in the place of torment in flames. And he, he asks Abraham to reach out his hand and dip, dip his hand in, in water and reach out and put it into his mouth because he thirsted. This means that the Lord, by saying, I thirst, that he was being judged under the righteous, holy fire of God. Or, or I said, that is, it is righteous and holy, but he's being judged by God's fire. He's being roasted as the lamb in Exodus. So here in Exodus, what we have, and I'm going to actually, oh man, I, you know, Wei Ping, I'm just going to have you read it because it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, let's go, let's go pass over. Here we go. Okay. Wait, Ping, can you read, can you read verse nine? Yeah. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roast it with fire, its head with its legs and with its inward parts. Okay. Can you now read this? Raw? Yeah. Okay. To eat Christ raw is to regard Christ not as the Redeemer, but only as a model or example of human living to be imitated. To eat Christ as if he were boiled with water is to regard his death on the cross merely as martyrdom under man's persecution, not as death for our redemption. 
to eat Christ roasted with fire is to believe that on the cross, Christ suffered for us under God's holy wrath, exercised in his judgment, as signified by the fire here. Okay, can you believe that? That is, that is incredible. That's incredible. Okay, like literally, you know, I, I heard this brother say once, when we come to verses in the Bible, we shouldn't sit there and ask all the time, what does this mean? What does this mean? We should also ask, why is this here? You know, if God's, if God's giving us his eternal purpose and he only has one book to do it, he's not going to waste words. So if he puts something in the Bible, it has meaning. And the meaning here, why would, why would God direct them at the Passover to not boil it or eat it raw? There has to be meaning to that. And we know that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We know that. So that means that when he was on the cross, in the spiritual realm, the Lord was burning under God's holy wrath. Okay? And that's, that's what we have to believe. Otherwise, he's just a martyr. He's just another person in human history that died for a cause. He couldn't be our redeemer. Okay? So this is, this is really, really interesting. And this is actually why the Lord said, I thirst, I thirst. This is the second sentence that he speaks on, on, on the second half of the three hours, right? So there's seven things that he says, and this is the second sentence after noon where he actually proclaims, I thirst because he's burning inwardly. This is also the reason why in Psalm 22, which we hit a little bit last week, can you read 2214? Yeah. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Okay, the, Lord, the Lord's heart is melting within him because he's burning. He is burning under, the, under God's holy wrath. Okay, last week we talked about a lot of physical things that happened, and they're horrible. They're horrible. And what Nathaniel already brought out is we will have no idea. We'll have no idea what he and the father went through on the cross those three hours. We don't, we will never know. But what we can know is that it was worse. It was worse. I, I, this is something that I realized this week. Those last three hours in the spiritual realm were far worse than anything before that in the physical realm. Okay, this this is something that we need to realize, is that right. he was he was being burned inwardly. We don't know we don't no idea what that I don't know what that means, but that's what was happening. Okay, now you going back to Genesis three twenty four. What you have is you got the cherub. So we've done the cherub, which is God's glory, which is the veil. You have the flame which was connected to the sword. So now we have to figure out what, what is the sword? Okay. He was judged by the father 
according to what? Paul, do you know do you know what he was judged according to? Well, the sword is righteousness, and I think it's gonna be the law then. Yes, bro. Yes. Bro, maybe maybe I shouldn't say you're cooking with fire right now. It's not the right time. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty hot here. It's, it's, it's not too that hot. Soon. <laughs> too soon, bro. So here you have Exodus seventeen six. Can you read that? I will be standing before you there upon the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Okay, so what actually, this is a picture in the Old Testament. We know from 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock that followed them was Christ. Paul clearly says that. The rock was Christ. There's no debate. This is not a way to interpret the Bible. He clearly says the rock was Christ. Mm -hmm. We know that the rock was Christ, but what is the meaning of Moses hitting the rock with a stick and water coming out? What's the spiritual significance behind that? Well, it sounds like on the cross when they struck his, or cut into his side and blood and water came out. Yeah, bro. Why did Moses get in trouble for hitting the rock twice? Because Christ was only pierced once. Yeah, bro. You can't. You, bro. It's it's one it's one sacrifice for all. So to hit to this is interesting. It's like a lot of people are stumbled by this. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, Moses hitting the rock twice. Who cares? Actually, it's a really big deal because what that rock signifies is Christ, and you're judging Christ twice. <laughs> So actually, that's, that's a pretty big deal, and it was a big enough deal to, to Jehovah that he's not going to allow Moses into the Holy Land, into the Promised Land. Okay, but, but right. Moses represents the law in the Old Testament. He represents the law, and he comes over to the rock in Exodus, and he hits the rock. He strikes it. Okay, now... This is, this is kind of a buildup because there's certain things that are happening here that you probably don't realize in the, in the spiritual realm because we also have Isaiah 53, 5. And Isaiah 53, 5, can you hit that? He was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastening for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we have been healed. Right. Okay, keep going. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Jehovah has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and it was he who was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is dumb before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and by judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who among them had the thought that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? And they assigned his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Jehovah was pleased to crush him, to afflict him with grief. Wait, wait, okay, hold, hold on a second. In, in, 10, in, in verse 10, 
It says Jehovah was what? Pleased to crush him, to afflict him with grief. Yeah, do you guys understand that while this was going on, Jehovah the Father was pleased to crush him? So during this time, during these three hours, he's made sin on our behalf. The sin of every rapist, of every murderer, of every child molester, of every war, of every genocide, of everything you've ever done is placed on him. For all mankind, every person ever. And so when, when Jehovah looks down on the sun, all he sees is sin. Right. And he's burning him with his holy wrath. And it actually pleases him to crush the sun. It pleases him. This is a moment none of us, none of us have any idea what's going on. I mean, we're... I feel so inadequate talking about this, but I'm ju I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. It it pleased Jehovah to crush him. Okay, then what you end up having? How did he crush him? How did he crush him? Well, the sword actually comes in in Zechariah 13. Can you, uh, Paul? Can you read this? It's 13, and six, will, and seven. And someone will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of those who love me. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my fellow, declares Jehovah of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Okay, at this moment in time, the father comes down with a sword, the sword of his righteousness. And he crushes the son and it pleased him. And he struck him with the sword. Paul, why was the Lord already dead when they came to break his legs? Because that's how God planned it to be. Oh, because to fulfill the prophecy, the um, not a bone of will be broken. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Paul, who killed the Lord? God. Or, well, he, he got, yeah. He's the one who, who planned it all from before time. Um, but, you know, you can... There's, there's in the in the natural world. There's the argument of the, the Jews and the um, and the Romans or the Gentiles. Okay, so they're all responsible. But you know, it's it's like um, when David sinned and killed the uh, husband of the woman that he took. Uh, you know, he sinned against the man who he'd killed and against the woman. But ultimately, it, it, the sin is against God. And okay, we killed him, but ultimately, it's all part of God's plan. Right. Right, bro, bro. Can you read? Can you read, fellow? Can you read the the paragraph here? Fellow, uh, Christ, the fellow of Jehovah, came as the God sent shepherd to the little children of Israel, but he was attacked unto death by them. As a man, Christ was both a relative of the children of Israel and a fellow of Jehovah, and he was hanging on the cross. His relatives wounded him, and God called in the sword to strike him. 
Okay, so going back to the verse, who was the one that killed him? So then God. The father, the father actually killed the son. God killed him. This is this is in the spiritual realm. This is behind the scenes. You think you think he bled out. You think you think he he suffocated. You think all these things. God actually came in and struck him and killed him. This is seen in the picture of Abraham and Isaac. He has the he has the the knife and he's going to strike the son and then God stops him. In the picture Abraham is the father, Isaac is the son. Okay, to further to further drive this point home because this absolutely blew me away. Psalm 22:15, my strength is dried up like a shard. Again, Psalm 22 is is the Lord what he was feeling on the cross. My strength is dried up like a shard and my tongue is stuck to my jaws. You, you have put me in the dust of death. Okay. Can you read that? Uh, you referring to God. On one hand, man crucified the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, God killed him. If Jesus had been killed only by man, he would have been merely a martyr and not our redeemer. But God judged him and put him into death for our redemption. All the sin of the world was laid on Christ as the Lamb of God. On the cross, he died a vicarious death for us to redeem us from our sins, from God's judgment, and from eternal perdition. So, so let me see if I got this straight, because <laughs> it's a bit confusing. Because you have Christ on the cross as the sacrifice and the Lamb. And then in the sacrificial rites, the, the one who's making the sacrifice would kill the, the Lamb and and cut its throat and bleed out and that was in their loo for sacrifice but this is then more than just sacrifice because it's not just that the the people killed jesus but god struck him down which then makes it seem like it's the judgment part right when god comes to judge in the end he's the one who will cast death and hades and everything else into the eternal fire so it's it's not just a sacrifice it's also a judgment or am i base yeah bro is that is that it yeah i mean he's he's being judged on our behalf right yeah right yeah cool so the bro do you do you understand that from genesis three fifteen, this this enmity between the between the two hmm. there's a there is a spiritual sword yeah. That is traveling the entire Old Testament. And it finds its target on the Lord on the cross. Yeah. At the perfect time, sovereignly arranged by God at Passover, the perfect time. They tried to kill him so many times before. They tried to push him off a cliff and he does some Houdini thing and disappears. They pick up stones and they turn around and he's gone. He keeps saying, the time is not yet. The time is not yet. Why does he keep saying that? And eventually he says, now is the time. Because the point wasn't that man would kill him. If they would have stoned him before, 
he could not have been our redeemer. Yeah. God had to kill him for him to be our redeemer. And it had to be done in a specific way. And all of it was sovereignly arranged by the Lord. Okay. There's something else that was going on in the spiritual realm. And now, now that we've now that we've got the holiness, righteousness, and glory, which which was taken care of, the cherub with the flaming sword is now moved out of the way because the Lord fulfilled all three of those things. Amen. Guillaume's going to come in here now, and he's going to tell you something that might blow your cerebellum. Oh, thank you. I was, for some reason, on mute. Okay, thanks. Let's go right away to Isaiah 53. And we'll read uh, verse 12. Isaiah 53. Yes. Amen. Okay. Uh, maybe, Cosette, can you help us with this verse? Therefore, I will divide to him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he alone bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, okay, here, there's a word that is very important that will help us to see something. And this, this word is uh, spoil. Okay, so spoil, it indicates warfare. It indicates war. Spoil is something that you claim when you won a victory. You're claiming persons, you're claiming things, possessions, you're claiming territory. So that indicates through this one word that a battle was taking place as the Lord was on the cross. And, and we'll come back to that. Now let's jump to Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Um, wiping out the handwriting and ordinances, which was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Stripping off the rulers and the authorities, he made a display of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Amen. Yes. Okay. So in, in the universe, okay, there's a battle. Okay, we have to see this. May the Lord help us to see this. And the word that we saw in verse 12 of Isaiah 53 is spoil. So the Lord won a victory on the cross. Even when we talked about the tree of life, um, and I mean, to me, it's very significant. Uh, we were, man was driven out of the garden of Eden. So in a sense, we had no access to the tree of life because we were out of the garden. 
but still it was guarded with righteousness, holiness, and glory for the reasons that we explained. But to me, also indicates it was also protected from God's enemy, that he would not touch it, so that at the right time, something could be fulfilled. So there's a war behind the scenes that we just don't see. But we have these elements in the Old Testament and in the New Testament indicating that. And so what happened on the cross after sin was put on the Lord Jesus, this man who never knew sin, who had a pure soul. He, he didn't know sin. And so now the brutal contact in his soul with all of our sins, all of the lies, all of the evil things were put on him. And this was not the end. And this verse, again, verse 12, Isaiah 53 tells us and show us it's a window into the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. And so what the Lord did on the cross enabled, okay, a tremendous victory to be won. He was tormented and persecuted and blasphemed on the cross during the first three hours. During the second three hours, God came in to judge. He judged sin, he judged the world, the ruler of the world, he destroyed the devil, he removed all the ordinances that were against us, dividing us, nailing them to the cross. Right. And so at that point, Satan realized, okay, wait a minute. Something is wrong. Something is happening. We are being undone. He's running to and fro in the entire earth, seeking for someone to devour. But then he realizes something gets triggered Something is wrong. Something is happening. And at that moment, the cross became the center of the entire universe because God was there. Christ was there. We were there. We died together with the Lord. Sin was there. Satan was there. And all of the evil ones cooperating with him Everyone is there in this, this magnificent scene of what the Lord was doing in his body. It is, it is marvelous. And this verse, Colossians 2.15, helps us to see this. And so the Lord in himself was creating the one new man. And so the enemy came with all the evil spirits, the evil angels, as we saw in Daniel in the third dive session, you have princes over regions. So we have the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. They all come into the cross to see what's happening and to try to stop it, to try to interfere. And so there's this magnificent word in Colossians 2.15 that you just read, Cosette, that says he stripped off, okay? He stripped them off the rulers and the authorities, okay? In the Greek, that word, um, strip off, it means to dust off as a feather duster. So he's just, he's just stripping them off, like 
Trevor indicated to us many times in the past dive sessions, and actually Brother Lee tells us that he actually went into the heavens. And as he was going up there to clean up the whole mess, they were swarming around, trying to stop him. But as he's going there to accomplish God's purpose, he's just stripping them off. And this scenery is just magnificent. It is incredible what the Lord accomplished on the cross. And the enemy, as we saw in the third dive session as well, he was beautiful. You know, he rebelled. He was proud because of his beauty in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. So he doesn't like to be put to shame. But this is exactly what the Lord did when he stripped them off as he was on the cross. He made a display of them. He triumphed over them. And so this is wonderful as he was being burnt, roasted from within. At the same time, he was defeating and destroying the devil. And right. so that shows that they were so close to him because he had to strip them off. So they were close at hand. They were pressing in, but he triumphed over them. And today, we don't need to look at ourselves we don't have any victory in ourselves. We don't have any authority in ourselves, but we were with the Lord right. at that scene. We died with him. We rose with him. We'll come back to that. We ascended with him. And now we are on a man stop, looking down on the leopard's mountains, looking down on the lion's dens. This is in the air where Satan is because now, the victory has been won. The Lord conquered the devil. He nullified, he destroyed all the works of the devil. This is from 1 John 3, 8. And so we have such a victorious Christ. Everything that he went through, everything that has happened, this is for this glorious accomplishing of God's purpose. The victory has been won, really, hallelujah. I don't know if the Lord would grant us the mercy to see through that scene. And if we can grasp a little bit of that, I think it will help us in our pursuit, in our faith, in our standing firm for the Lord, that the victory has been won. Praise Amen. the Lord. Amen. So now we Wait, come. Fast. This yeah. part of the, um, the brushing off part, was this like, towards the um the last three hours when the lord's on the cross or was this after like this is the last three hours okay okay wow the last so three you hours. said as he's being like burned basically on the inside out he's also you said ascending you said yes going up. so okay we get this and i think trevor will touch that a little bit later uh you know we talked about this earlier in, in previous dive sessions in ephesians 4 Verse eight, you know, we were saying how heaven is not, anyways, let's not right, go there right, again. Okay. But we talked about how he descended, but before he descended, he ascended. And so, mm -hmm. anyways, uh, we can discuss this matter further, but as he was on the cross, creating in himself the one new man, having sin upon him, he also dealt with the devil and all the ones who follow him. Wow. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And the whole universe was watching. Yeah. Everyone saw. 
And so, anyways, now this is why we can we can exercise God's authority and to to say to the to the demons, go away, yeah. because the victory has been won. Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, so you know, I think this puts into uh, perspective the third sentence that the Lord or the statement that the Lord made on the cross. And that was, uh, and I think many of us are familiar with this, but the third statement was, it is finished. And, uh, you know, I think having considered both his physical and psychological suffering, being mocked by man in the first three hours, being abandoned by God in the second three hours, uh, fulfilling the requirements of the law, fulfilling the requirements of God's righteousness, holiness, and glory, at the same time destroying the devil and all that belong to him. Uh, this, there's a lot behind this statement. It is finished. And actually, we'll touch more on this next week when we get into what was accomplished through the Lord's death. Uh, so, you know, that brings us actually to the uh, final statement. Uh, and this is when he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And, you know, at this point, he says, Father. So, you know, at this point, the relationship the economical relationship is restored. Okay, so at this point, Father, into your hands, I commit my, my spirit. Okay, so his redemptive work was accomplished. His fellowship with the Father was restored. But that's not it. There's something else that happens. And uh, Trevor is going to take us down. Yes. Okay, Cassette, Cassette, are you with me? For sure. Okay, I need you to read Genesis 6-2 here. All right. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took wives for themselves from all whom they chose. Okay, this is, this is a very weird verse, but we're just going to get into it for a second because it applies. There are these evil angels, these archons, they're fallen angels that actually... Uh, left their place in the heavenlies and they came down. They're, they're referred to as the sons of God. These are fallen angels that mated with women. And in the following verses, they actually created these creatures, these hybrid creatures, half angel, half human, and they're referred to as Nephilim in the Bible. Okay. This is what actually Goliath was. He was a Nephilim. Okay. The reason why this is significant is God wants to marry man. That is his goal. He wants to marry man. The reason right, why right. Satan would have his fallen angels go down and actually do this horrible, evil, disgusting act is because it would actually put this, this satanic... Uh, fallen, angelic, I don't know, gene pool into, into the human race. 
okay? That's, that's completely unacceptable. This is actually one of the reasons why God had to do the flood. He had to start over because these fallen angels, they went too far. If you, if you can imagine, if you could imagine, God actually has a threshold with Satan. This time you've gone too far. Okay. I've already cast you out of your place in the, in the heavens, but now you've gone way too far. And this isn't the only place this is referred to. In, in Jude, can you read verse 6? And angels who did not keep their own principality, but abandoned their own dwelling place, he has kept an eternal bounds under gloom for the judgment of the great day. Okay, so God, God actually took these fallen satanic creatures that did this, these ones that, that abandoned their principality, okay? He took them and he took them down into Hades. Okay, and we're, we're actually going to piece these, these verses together. In 2 Peter, this is, this is really, okay, yeah. Here, can you hit verse 4? Sure. Um, okay. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but delivered them to gloomy pits, having cast them down to tar Tartarus, they kept, they being kept for judgment. Okay. What is, what is Tartarus? No idea. Like, what, there's like a new, there's a new place. Cause, oh man, cause that there's a new place. So oh. now, now what you have is you have on one side, you have paradise. You have on the other side, you have torment. This is in Hades. And then actually there's another place there's another place called Tartarus, okay? And this place is, is somewhere that, that God took these angels and he actually locked them up for the judgment day. These guys were so bad. They're like Satan's worst. They were so bad that he's like, no, I'm not actually going to allow you to, to roam around. Actually, I'm just going to lock you up in these prisons in Tartarus waiting for the judgment day where I'm eventually going to throw you into the lake of fire. Okay. And we know this because in verse five, it talks about the time of Noah. Okay. So this was, this is happening in the time of Noah. Um, okay. Paul, we yeah. lost cassette, but we're going to you. Okay. Oh, Paul, oh, no, cassette's back. She raised her hand. Where is she at? Cassette, are you ready? Yeah, sorry, my computer died, but it didn't give me that like little notification in the corner. So I was like, where'd everyone go? I went to a new place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hopefully, it, hopefully it wasn't Tartarus. Okay, so no. here we go. <laughs> Wait, what did, did you say what it was? Yeah, it's it's it was all that's that's in the past now, and we just got to <sighs> pursue. You know, we got it. So Tartarus is, Tartarus is a holding place. It's a holding place for these fallen angels who did this. Okay. It's a prison. It's a prison specifically for them. Okay. Okay. Now, the Lord just defeated the enemy on the cross. It is finished. What, what was finished? Because we, we, we've gone over this before, but what was finished? 
um, Satan, death, redemptive work, everything. Okay. Was was the church built? No. Was that finished? No. Okay. Was it? Was, no. God, was God's eternal purpose finished? No. No. Okay. So it is finished does not encompass everything that God has ever planned. Right. Okay. He still has an eternal purpose. If it is finished, uh, it, it's, it's simply narrowing down on the redemptive aspect. It is finished. Okay. Now, what we, what we now have is in 1 Peter 3, 18. Check this out, Cassette. Can you read this? Mm -hmm. For Christ also has suffered once for sins, the righteous on behalf of the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, on the one hand being put to death in the flesh, but on the other made alive in the spirit. Okay, what's the next verse? In which also he went and proclaimed to the spirit in prison. Oh, okay, cassette. Here we go. So this is what happens. This is what happens. The Lord defeats, defeats Satan on the cross. It's very clear in Hebrews 2.14 that he destroyed the devil on the cross. Right. He destroyed him. Okay. And so he defeated sin, Satan, death. He defeated it. Right. There's actually two earthquakes that happen. One, one is when he dies, there's an earthquake. Another earthquake happens when he raises from the dead. The rocks are split. These rocks signify Satan's kingdom on the earth being broken. Okay? This is all happening. It's these physical things that are happening, but there's spiritual implication to all of them. Yeah. Okay? So... So what you have now is he descended into paradise. This is why when he talks to the, the criminal, he says today, he doesn't say today you will be with me in heaven. Mm. He says today you will be with me in paradise. Okay. The Lord went down. We know in Hebrews 12, 40, Okay, that he descended into the into the heart of the earth, and he was there three days and three nights, just like no Jonah and the whale. Okay, so now now we know the Lord went down into paradise. The Lord wasn't burning. He wasn't burning down there. So he's he's on the side of Abraham's bosom, which we see in Luke sixteen. And actually, we don't know where Tartarus is, okay? I'm not giving you, like, the geographical locations of these places. I have no idea, okay? Maybe it's, maybe it's like, down in the great chasm that's fixed that no one can cross. I don't know. But what ends up happening is, according to 1 Peter 3.19, is he actually goes to the edge of this chasm, and he starts proclaiming to the spirits in prison, I am victorious over you. Amen. Everything that you had planned and, and tried to do to mess up my plan in Genesis 6, it is over. This isn't, a, this isn't, you cannot get saved. You cannot get saved after you're dead. He's not proclaiming the gospel to people down there. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is, this in the Greek, this is a declaration 
This is not, this is not something like, oh, you should turn your heart to Jesus. And no, 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 no. Okay. Your destiny is already secured if you're down there. And so what he's doing is he's proclaiming his victory over the enemy. Right. I just defeated your boss. I just shamed all of them. Actually, your buddies were up there and they were trying, they were trying to get me off the cross. They were even speaking through people saying, come down off the cross, come down off the cross. That was the enemy speaking through man because he realized I'm being completely undone. Getting into all this stuff that Guillaume was saying, that the whole universe got, oh man, it, like the whole thing just went down. And he's just sitting there. Do you think, it, I mean, do you guys think it was hard? Do you think it's hard to, for him to rip off principalities? No, no it was just that, it was just that feather duster. Like, like yeah. you're annoying. Wow. I'm accomplishing a goal right now and you're annoying me. And so he just feather dusted them. And then he descends into the abyss and he starts telling everybody, I don't know what kind of party was going on down there on the paradise side. I, I'm assuming it was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, if I, if I'm, if I'm Adam, you know, I'm Adam and Eve and I'm on the paradise side and the Lord comes down. Yeah. And it's like, man, we've been waiting for this. We've been praying for this. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is the Messiah, the anointed one. He's actually here. And then he actually goes and starts proclaiming to these evil, evil angels that are, that are locked up in this prison. You have one destiny and it's the lake of fire. Wow. Okay. So on his way out after three, he does this for three days. He's down there proclaiming to the spirits in prison. A lot of different Bible scholars have actually ended up trying to figure out what the spirits in prison are. That's a very good footnote if you want to read it. I enjoy it very much. It's awesome. Which footnote is it? It's, it's the one in 1 Peter 3.19 okay. for spirits. Um, okay, so what ends up happening is the Lord on his way out of Hades, it clearly states in Acts 2.24. Okay, let's just read it. Let's just go to it. Okay, can you read that cassette? Mm -hmm. Whom God has raised up, having loosened, having loosed the pangs of death, since it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't possible. Cassette, it's not, it's not possible. Wow. So he goes, he goes down into Hades. He proclaims to the spirits in prison. He takes the keys of death in Hades on his way out. Wow. He, now, he now has power over death. The most powerful thing in the universe was death. But the more powerful thing is resurrection. How, how does death do anything to resurrection? It can't. It can't. Yeah. And so when he says in John, when he says, I am the resurrection, it's not possible. 
it's not possible for him to be held down there. Wow. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there were, if there were evil beings, spirits trying to keep him down there, but I imagine it was something along the lines of like taking a, a soccer ball or something and trying to push it under, under a pool of water. You know, I don't know if you've ever done that. You know, I, when, when I was a kid, I used to play in the pool and I would try to like push balls down. It's not possible. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. And so this is the Lord down in Hades. It wasn't possible for him to be held down by it. And so actually he grabs the keys and he starts resurrecting. When the Lord resurrects, there's another earthquake because he has officially completely defeated death. This same resurrection life lives within you. Amen. It doesn't matter how dead of a situation you're in. It doesn't matter how horrible something you've done. You have the resurrection life of Christ living in you. Amen. And it doesn't matter if he's going to resurrect you in this age or the next age. He's going to resurrect you. Amen. Because death cannot hold you. Mm. Okay. This is awesome. It's actually the power of his resurrection was so powerful that when he resurrected, it says in Matthew that some people resurrected with him and they started walking around the holy city. This is in Matthew 27. So they, it's actually the only, I was telling Guillaume last night, it's the only time in the Gospels the word saint is used. And it says the saints of those resurrected showing, showing that even people in the Old Testament were saved. They were saints. And they resurrected and they went into the city and they started telling everybody, by the way, I was, I was down there with the Lord. You should have seen it. I mean, what kind of story is this? Yeah. I just, I just witnessed all of it. You guys have to know what just happened. It's also very mysterious. I don't know if they got like a 24-hour pass. Like, okay, guys, back in your tombs. But regardless, that's what happened. This is incredible. Amen. I don't, I don't know what else to say, guys. This is what happened in the spiritual realm. This is like puts everything I've heard about the resurrection power in us to like on like a whole new level for me. Like I've heard that so much, you know, that that verse in Ephesians three, is it 17? that says the Lord may make his home in your heart. Um, and it's talking about the same power that the, that the Lord needs to use to make his home in our heart is the resurrection power. But like just seeing that, like, I don't know, it's, it's, he is the resurrection. So not even death could hold him because he is something more powerful than death, and that's resurrection. It's like, mm. I don't know.